1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For what we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Mark, for reading the scripture here for us this morning. And if you uh, if you've been around Redeemer the last couple weeks, that probably sounded slightly familiar to you, um, because we've had the same scripture passage read every week since Easter. We've been taking this time to look at this idea of love, this idea of love that Jesus seemed to think was pretty important to his life and his ministry. He seemed to think it was pretty important to a pretty important implication to his death and resurrection from the dead. And it sounds nice, right? Like you you hear, oh, a sermon series on love. That sounds like something I want to hear. Until you show up and it says, you know, love is patient. It sounds nice until you remember like your neighbor's music that kept going past midnight last night and you wanted to strangle them, right? It keeps going. Love is kind, Oh, okay. Not irritable or resentful. Doesn't insist on its own way. At, at some point in this list of, of things, you start going from, that sounds really nice, to feel like, hey, Paul, I feel like you're kind of trying to pick on me a little bit here. This is unrealistic. This is un, uh, un, an impossible standard of love to live up to. But today we're going to look at uh, a, a little clause that maybe, just maybe, if there's one clause in this section that sounds doable, it sounds realistic, it's this one. It's, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You think, well, I mean, I'm not opposed to truth, right? Uh, I don't rejoice at wrongdoing? Like, what kind of sicko rejoices at wrongdoing? That seems like a really low uh, hurdle to clear, right? I don't get excited and celebrate wrongdoing or, or evil, maybe your translation says, in the world. 
And then you wake up yesterday morning and you see that the Warriors lost by 20 on Friday night, and you feel really good. Your heart skips a beat at, at their misery and, and their commiseration, and you go, maybe, maybe we do do this. And maybe we rejoice at wrongdoing more than we like to think. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this passage through really two big concepts, um, which is this. I think we do get it backwards. So how do we get this phrase backwards? How is it that, that in reality, in space and time, we pretty often rejoice at the wrongdoing that occurs in other people's lives, and we reject the truth? How is it that we get those things backward? And then the second one is this, how do we reverse the trend? Is there a way to undo this knot that we've found ourselves in? So first, I want to take a look, trying to understand how do we get it backwards. And there's two points. They're very original. We get it backwards because we say we, because we do rejoice at wrongdoing and because we do fail to rejoice at the truth. We rejoice at wrongdoing. When I read this first, the, the first image that came to my mind was uh, in high school, I went to see this movie with my friends. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities about this movie. I am not suggesting that you should spend your Mother's Day watching this movie. This is um, probably one of the most uh, violent and gory revenge movies I've ever seen. But it was a movie that came out when I was in high school called Kill Bill. Maybe you uh, resemble that, and, and the name of it, if you haven't seen it, kind of tells the whole plot line of the story, right? It is this assassin who wakes up from a coma and goes to exact her revenge in the most bloody and gory and awful, terrible ways imaginable. But I remember sitting there in the, the movie theater as, as this you know, blood fills the screen, and there was one point... Uh, one particularly disturbing, intense point in the movie where, where some dude in the back of the theater stands up and he goes, yeah, get her. And you go, oh gosh, don't you, you're not supposed to say that part out loud, I don't think, right? Like that's, that's, that's kind of disturbing to be rejoicing at that much violence. But I, when we come to this, I don't think that the bar of, 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 <laughs> of decapitation is the bar of, of wrongdoing or evil. I think it's, it's much more simple. And I think our rejoicing in that evil is, is much more subtle than we like to think. See, with that word, wrongdoing, that we see in our passage, or maybe if you're looking at a different translation, it might say some, probably says something like evil. It's a word that, that is used um, in the Greek in all sorts of contexts, uh, none of them very lovely. It's unrighteousness, it's injustice, it's dishonesty. The idea here is, is that you rejoice when you find something, you find some gratitude, you find some excitement, you find yourself feeling better when things go wrong for someone else. You find that you, you, you feel better about yourself when something goes wrong for someone else. So let me give you a really innocent version first. 
probably has played out in your friendships at some point in your life, some relationships. Here's how it happens in my marriage. My wife's an artist. Um, she's well-versed in aesthetics and, and design. I am not, right? And so she will oftentimes use these words that have no meaning. I've never heard them uttered out loud in my life. And I go, what do you, that's not a word. What are you talking about? She goes, oh, absolutely, that's a word. Everyone uses it. I was like, I've never, I've, I've walked on this earth a long time. I've never heard anyone, you, you kind of get how this banter goes, right? And so what do you do? You, you recruit a poll, right? You start finding friends and you go, wait, 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 okay, hold on. You, unfortunate person we have targeted our eyes on, you settle this debate for us. Have you ever heard the word ombre? right? And of course they have, and I'm, and I'm always wrong, right? And what is happening in that moment? What is happening when Whitney feels a, a little surge of vindication, when she feels a little bit of, I told you so? She has the opportunity to rejoice in my ignorance, doesn't she? Or maybe, uh, maybe a little bit darker, you, you have some folks that you go to school with or, or that you work with, folks that, that you kind of feel are your natural uh, competition, as it were, even if you wouldn't say it out loud. And if you don't do well on a test or, or you don't get that next promotion that, that you were assigned for, how do you feel if, if that person doesn't get it either, Right? When it turns out that they got an even worse test score, or they didn't even get the second interview that you got, well, how do you feel? You feel good, better about yourself, right? You feel a vindication about yourself at their misfortune, at their failure. But it gets even darker, doesn't it? How do you spend your time with your friends as you sit around and you talk about your school or your church or your government, right? How, do you, how is it that you talk about the person who's not in the room? More often than not, don't we, don't we relish the, the, the way that we can list all the things that, that the other people have gotten wrong, all the ways that the institutions that we're a part of are corrupt and, and inept, the ways that the, the city has has squandered its opportunities, the, the, the ways that other people are negligent. We love to have those conversations. We love to dish on one another. Why? Because it makes us feel like we're in a different category than those people. We're rejoicing in wrongdoing. And that's all before we get to the people who we actually view to be enemies, right? The people who we actually feel are, are adversaries against us. Right? Think about, uh, I'm loath to even bring it up, but right? think about the way that political discourse happens in our world. I don't think if, if I took a poll here this morning, if, if I said, hey, um, is an elderly man tripping and stumbling down a ramp a funny thing? You'd be, oh, no, that's, that sounds terrible. But when that elderly man was you know, President Trump a few, a few years ago, there was quite a lot of us who, who relished in, in saying, ah, he deserves the humiliation, right? Or when that elderly man is, is President Biden fumbling with his words, unable to complete his sentence or, or his thought, so another group of us goes, ah, he deserves it. 
because we celebrate the wrongdoing, much less, much less when the scandals and the shame uh, 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 of the public eye fall upon them, we glory to see our enemies fail. We love this idea. We love this idea of karma, don't we? Not specifically in this room, our, our, our society as a whole, which is kind of strange because when you think about uh, most uh, concepts from the Eastern uh, religious systems, for most of the West, they seem so obscure and so distant and so unrelatable that most of us stay pretty far away from it. But this karma, idea of karma, right, that the people who have done you wrong are going to get payback in some form or fashion, that those who have made you suffer will suffer themselves. We as a culture love that idea because we rejoice to see those people we consider enemies suffer. And we could go on and on and on. I've given you a pretty good, a pretty good list there already. Ways that we have, have looked upon another human being whether they're our friend, whether they're our adversary, whether they're our competition, and we rejoice to see them fail. We rejoice to see them, uh, to see them lose. And this is really important because it brings us to the second point. It's, it's, it's that we get this backwards, right? We do rejoice at their wrongdoing, and when we rejoice at their wrongdoing, we cannot Rejoice in the truth. When you first read this, uh, this little clause here, it, it reads kind of strange, doesn't it? Um, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It's probably not how you would have finished the sentence, is it? You, uh, or at least I wouldn't. I would think uh, the opposite of wrongdoing would be kindness. Or the opposite of wrongdoing would be gentleness or goodness or niceness or, or something along those lines. But, but for Paul, when he says, do not rejoice, excuse me, do not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. He's putting truth as the opposite, right? To celebrate, to rejoice in truth is the opposite of not rejoicing in wrongdoing. Here's why I think that is. Because I think when we rejoice at the wrongdoing of others, we reject the truth of the matter, and I think we reject the truth of the person. Reject the truth of the matter, because here's the deal. You can't uh, take a selfish delight at another person's expense and still be pursuing uh, an honest conversation with one another. I listened to his podcast recently uh, that's called the the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, which, you know, whatever you think of J.K. Rowling, whatever you think of, of this particular podcast, it is a fascinating test subject, right? J.K. Rowling's the author of Harry Potter, who uh, at different points in her life has, has managed to find the direct and, and vehement ire of, of people, fundamentalists, uh, uh, way across the spectrum of political, religion, social spectrums. Whatever line you want to draw, like these two people all have decided to hate J.K. Rowling uh, with an equal vehemence. Um, 
But in this, in this conversation, they're, they're working to try to understand these situations that we get ourselves into as humans, situations where we decide that the per- person opposite to us in the conversation or in the debate or in the, uh, in the competition is not just wrong, but evil, right? The, when the person on the other side is not just mistaken, but completely inept, and maybe dangerously so, right? And, and the podcast host uh, asked her, she asked, uh, how do you, when you're in the midst of these situations, um, do you try to remain intellectually honest? And I thought uh, her, J.K. Rowling's answer was so fascinating. She says this. She says, we should question ourselves most when we receive a rush of adrenaline by doing or saying something. It is when you experience an excitement over making your next point, when you relish the thought of, of assigning a label to another person, when you can't wait to, to, to prove yourself vindicated, that what you're going to be pursuing is not the truth of the matter. What you're going to be pursuing is your feeling of rightness. And it turns out that she's actually, uh, there's actually some pretty good rationale to what she's saying, because there's a, a, a basic neurochemical reality in you, that when you feel like you have won an argument, when you feel like you've made your point, there is a, a rush of adrenaline and dopamine that fills your mind, right, that makes you feel invincible, that makes you feel on top of the world, a feeling that you get whether you are actually right or not. And so if you're in a conversation with another person and you're relating with another human, you will find yourself and you consider them your enemy. You will find yourself pursuing that rush of dopamine. You will find yourself pursuing the feeling that you are good and right in the world and that they are not and you will pursue that feeling even if it leads you into, into actual falsehoods, into actual harm. When you rejoice at the wrongdoing of another, you are not dealing with reality as it is. You're trying to serve yourself. Love, Paul says, has no room for for rose-colored glasses that view yourself as innocent and everyone else as easy. Love traffics in truth. It traffics in reality. So if you're pursuing, uh, if you're rejoicing at your wrongdoing, you will uh, ultimately reject the pursuit of truth of the matter. But you'll also pursue uh, reject. I'm sorry. Pursue. You'll reject the truth of the person. I put a quote in the front of your bulletin from uh, C.S. Lewis, one that you've maybe you've read before, one that you've heard before, right? But he he says as there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And what C.S. is representing there is this basic. Christian doctrine, that the people in your life, the people that you see, the people that you interact with, the people you do business with, the people that you argue with and fight with and compete with, 
that there is a reality about that person that often is hidden from our senses. And it's a reality that they are made in the image of God, filled, filled with dignity and honor because of it. That every single person that you interact with, no matter how vile and disgusting, no matter how uh, argumentative and defensive they, they engage with you, they are a person who, according to the Bible, is of incredible worth specifically of incredible worth to our God. Because in the scriptures, God creates people, Adam and Eve, and he calls them good. And that goodness comes upon them long before the indignities of sin and rebellion and death find them in Genesis 3. That what is most true of them, what is most true of their role as a human is, is that they are made in the image of God and they have dignity. It is the, the indignities of this life that come through a lie which you are seeing. Think about the way that Jesus interacted with humans on earth. Even humans that were literally demon-possessed, right? Humans who, 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 who became the actual mouthpieces for demons in the story. How does Jesus uh, relate with those who, who, who are exuding such evil in the world? He treats them with compassion. Because before they're mouthpieces of the devil, they are children of God made in his image to bring good and truth and beauty into this world. Their corruption does not negate their dignity. And so if you are in a conversation or a debate or an argument or a war with another human being and you reduce them to being evil... You reduce them to being uh, undesirable. If you reduce them to being uh, merely whatever the, the, the label you want to assign to them is, you are lying about who they really are. Because who they really are is a human made in the image of God, filled with dignity and truth. You must first celebrate that before you, can, before you can talk about anything else. So if our desire, if our desire to celebrate wrongdoing in the other leads us to, to, to reject or, or to fail to rejoice in the truth of who they are, what are we to do? How do we re reverse the trend? Well, I want to propose to us that we begin where God began. That we begin when we engage with one another first. The first order of business is to find that which is dignity, that which is good, that which is beautiful in that person, and we celebrate it. That first we rejoice in their dignity, and then secondly, we'll mourn the indignities. We must rejoice in their dignity. There's this uh, fascinating uh, little character trope that we're starting to see pop up in movies, and it's, it's this good guy, the protagonist being this 
overly kind and generous and gracious person, right? The most obvious example is Ted Lasso. I haven't seen season three, so if his character's ruined, don't tell me. Um, right? It's Ted Lasso, who, who's just always trying to find what is good. He's, he's always trying to be patient and kind and, and hear out even the most um, undesirable of, of other people. But I watched this uh, TV show, this streaming TV show recently called Jury Duty, and it's a, it's a pretty new one on kind of an obscure streaming service, but it has taken off recently. And and the reason I think it's starting to take off is because the story centers on this man named Ronald. Now, the premise of the show is, is that Ronald is a, a normal human being who uh, believes he has been summoned for jury duty. But when he shows up for, for jury duty, uh, all the, the, he shows up to a fake courtroom with a fake court case and a fake judge and a, and a fake lawyers, and, and all the rest of the members on his jury are uh, improv actors. He, this is like Truman Show meets Saturday Night Live, okay? And so they have designed this show to put Ronald in, in, in contact with these characters who are living out the most bizarre SNL skit you can imagine, right? The most uh, bizarre thing to see how is it that he will respond? How will he react? And the show is taking off because the way that Ronald reacts to these people is, is so sweet. It's so kind. It is so loving. Here's one example. One of the characters that the, the, one of the actors is playing the role of, of Todd. Okay, and Todd is a character who has been specifically designed to creep Ronald out, to scare him away, to make him be like, ah, I want to keep this dude at arm's length. Um, and of course, the show is orchestrated to bring Todd in as much interaction with Ronald as, as is possible. But when, the, but when Ronald shows up for jury duty and he meets this eccentric character, the way he responds utterly blows you away. Because you see, Todd is this kind of strange dude. He's kind of gangly looking. He, he, he speaks uh, with like this deadpan stare, right? Like this unblinking stare at those he's interacting with. He, um, he speaks in a monotone voice. He has an obsession, uh, a, a deep love of cybernetics, right? The, the intersection of technology and human, trying to improve the human experience through his technology. Um, <laughs> so he, he shows up for jury duty, and he is, is put in contact with this, this person, Todd, a, a person who is meant to annoy him, a, a person whose character flaws and social interactions are meant to push Ronald in the opposite direction. One day, they had Todd show up to jury duty, uh, wearing his invention called chair pants, or chance for short. And these chair pants are like, uh, they're like, <laughs> they're like uh, um, crutches that are affixed to his buttocks, right? So as he's walking around, there's these crutches that are like flapping behind him. He can't sit down on anything because they're designed so that when he, he sits down, the, the, the crutches spread apart and he can just sit wherever he wants. And he is telling everyone about his invention. It's, it's creating this massive inconvenience for the rest of the jury as, as he does this. But when, uh, but when Ronald interacts with him, he's not thrown off 
by the obscure ways that he interacts with the world. When Ronald interacts with him, he doesn't laugh at, at his expense or, or make fun of his misery. When Ronald sees Todd, he doesn't try to distance himself to people more normal or, or, or more like him. When he looks at Todd, he sees the opportunity to celebrate something good and beautiful. And so when Todd's sad and, 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 and depressed that no one likes his inventions, uh, Ronald gives him a bug's life, which if you've seen this, this is this old kid's cartoon about this misunderstood inventor. He pulls him aside, Ronald does, and he says, Todd, look, you know, you take a lot of risks, and not all of them are going to pay off, but keep going after it. You see, Todd, Ronald had to dig through a lot of obscure, obscure and, and harmful interactions. He had to be patient and kind and seek to find that which was good, even in the midst of that which was not good. If we're going to rejoice in the truth of those we interact with, if we're going to rejoice in the God-given dignity, we are going to have to do some digging. We're going to have to look to find what morsel is good and true and beautiful in them. That means that when uh, someone criticizes you or confronts you or challenges your view, and they're coming at you with all the bias and defensiveness, even cruelty that they can muster. To first rejoice in their dignity is to find what is it in them? What is it in their, their criticism of me? What is it in their, uh, their cause or their agenda that is good and right and beautiful? What can I affirm about their perspective? That before you can deal with defensiveness, before you can deal with their cruelty, before you can seek justice for yourself, you must first start where God starts, and that's to celebrate their dignity. That means when you are trying to love somebody who, who has habits and patterns in their life that are harsh and cruel, habits and, and patterns in their life where they keep you stiff-armed against them, that you will not look at them and say, why haven't you fixed yourself fast enough? You will look at them and you will celebrate even the tiniest step in the right direction. We have a baby, I have a baby in my house, and, and if she uh, so much as rolls herself over, the whole room erupts in applause at this feat. What would it be like if we treated one another that way? What would it be like if, if we looked at those who are struggling and we triumphed and we celebrated baby steps in the right direction? You can't ever deal with a person as anything other than a problem until you first treat them as a gift from a good God for the good of his creation. We must rejoice in their dignity if we're going to reverse the trend. But we got to do something else, and that is to mourn indignity. At this point in the sermon, I've given, I'm guessing you're, you're, you're probably in one of two positions. One is you are, um, you're feeling maybe uh, really overwhelmed. 
right? I just listed off a whole litmus list of ways that you have probably failed to love those in your midst. Or maybe you're sitting here and you are still focused on what I just said, and you said, but no, we got to deal with their, we got to deal with their problems, right? I can't just ignore all the things that have gone wrong in their life. I can't just ignore the injustices and the defensiveness and the, and the cruelties that exist in them. There are real, uh, there are real problems that need to be solved. And if I'm just looking for what is good in them, I will, uh, nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever move. And as different as those reactions are, I think they have the same solution. Because the, the, the ineptness of your ability to love others, your proclivity to, to treat them with disdain or superiority, and your frustration at, at their ineptness and their indignities find their home and find their solution in the same place. And that is in a God who does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but a God who mourns wrongdoing. Both your feeling of guilt and and your feeling that they are flawed find their hope not in your ability to fix yourself or to fix the other person, nor do they find their, their hope uh, in an idea that you could pretend like the problems don't exist. They find their hope in a God who loves us with a love that we have never imagined, we, we could never imagine in a human relationship, a love that looks us dead in the eye and sees all of our faults, sees all of our failures, that looks upon us and, and the grievous ways that we have treated one another and treated his world and responds with a love and acceptance that is so extravagant, it's otherworldly. A love and an acceptance and a redemption that we could have never dreamed up if you gave us a million years. You see, the thing that will that thing that will fix you and your guilt and your shame over your failure to love and the thing that will fix the person who is unloving and unkind is the same thing. A God who looks upon us with eyes of redemption. A God who came into our midst to die, not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for those who, who are surrounded with dignity, but for those who are surrounded by indignities, by failures and loss and mistreatment. What you need and what the, your enemy needs is the same thing, and that is an encounter with Jesus. The resurrection tells us that we are free to hope and to dream and to long for something better. But it teaches us that we cannot and we will not do that on our own. That Jesus will come and see what is broken and he will fix it. So how, what is our response? I'm going to suggest that the opposite of not rejoicing in wrongdoing is to mourn wrongdoing. 
If you think about your posture as you mourn the, the, the mourn alongside someone who has lost a family member, you don't show up to a funeral attempting to, to fix the death that has brought harm into the world. Neither do you show up to a funeral pretending like that death never occurred. You show up to that funeral lamenting, wishing that it were not so, but trusting that Jesus could do something even in the impossible. Is it possible that we could engage with one another, that we could love one another, not with a love that we find in ourselves, but a love that comes from Jesus? Could we look at each other as, as works in process that Jesus is redeeming? I think our response and our position towards one another needs to be a lot like your uh, approach to your midtown house. All of us who uh, have bought homes in this neighborhood have homes that are tragically flawed, but before they were tragically flawed, they were built with incredible beauty. Our homes are all like 100, 115 years old, designed with a craftsmanship that you would be hard-pressed to find in the world today, made to, to, to be places of beauty and aesthetics that, that we rarely value in our world today, and they are homes that are incredibly frustrating to work with because nothing is square, nothing is level, everything is falling in on itself. But you don't give up on your home because it has problems. You stick with it because it has potential. You stick with it because you believe that the beauty that was made at its, at its building can be restored to it through the renovating work of a skilled handyman. That that which was robbed and the dignity that was taken from this stately home can be restored to it with love and effort. And that friends, is what Jesus came to do. To find an unlovable person like yourself and to find the unlovable people that surround you in your life and to celebrate their dignity, to mourn what has gone wrong and one day to restore us to his full glory. Pray with me. God, we don't know how to love like that. God, we don't know how to dream like that. So, Father, we pray that you would enter into us, that you would enter into our interactions with one another. God, that you would give us the eyes to see the unimaginable happening, that you are bringing and restoring dignity and hope, that you are expelling that which is broken that you are, are, are healing that which wounds, that you are leading us from rebellion into obedience. God, we can't love that way, but you can through us. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.